My name is Maya Deary. This interview with Dr. Jess Ponting, lifelong surfer, director of the Center for Surf Research, and one of the architects of Stoke Certification for Sustainable Surf and Snow-Based Tourism, is the second in a series called Waves to Wisdom. The project is a simple one. I seek out people I admire, surfers with what look to me to be ocean-centered wisdom practices. I ask them if they'd be willing to share a surf session or two, and then, after we ride some waves together, talk to me about their oceanic habits, about surfing, meaning, work, anything else that comes up. I made this appointment with Jess months ahead of the days we actually surfed, and these sessions happened to coincide with a swell that produced eight-foot waves. A scary challenge for me, but so much fun. In this first part of the two-part interview with Jess, we covered his childhood and early education. This first part of our talk in his office overlooking San Diego State's campus tells the story of how his serious practice of oceanic play and his experience as a young man with a three-word job description slowly guided him into some profoundly grown-up, values-driven work in the world. This is Waves to Wisdom. This is a sunscreen that some of our students are making. No, tell me like, about that. I can't remember. It has like f only four ingredients. And uh, it's smells pretty good. reef safe and all the rest of it. Huh. He's like, yeah, try that. I'll give you a jar. And this is how the jar came. And I'm like, I'm not done. I want to put my finger in there. <laughs> this jar has clearly been entered previously. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, it's Fascinating. Um, okay, if you are comfortable with it, will you tell me uh, and anybody listening your name, mm -hmm. your age, and how long you've been surfing? My name is Jess Ponting. I'm 43 years old. I've been surfing for 35 years. Okay, so since childhood. Yeah. Can you remember the first time you surfed? Whatever that means for you. Not, um, not exactly. I remember being, because I mean it kind of depends on your definition of surfing. For me I started catching waves when I was eight. Um, or thereabouts on a flexible styrofoamy kind of terrible bodyboard and I remember the th distinctly remember the thrill of riding that back to the beach at what felt like warp speed. Um, I remember the first time I paddled out on a surfboard and I was out for probably three hours and didn't catch a single wave. Someone from my primary school was watching and told everyone back at school, you went surfing, you didn't catch a single wave. <laughs> oh, no. uh, but I, to be honest, it didn't faze me that much because it was something I was going to master and that was, you know, learning to sit on a board is the, is the first thing. So I was just falling off the thing, couldn't even sit on it. It's but, extremely, depending on the size of the board, that can uh, be a real challenge. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a skill you have to learn, the very first one. Yes. Mm. So where was that? That was at Blackhead Beach on the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales in Australia. Okay. And were your parents ocean people? Did they enjoy the ocean? Um, they enjoyed uh, being ocean adjacent, but um, they both grew up in uh, the south of Wales, my dad in a coal mining valley, uh, my mother on the coast in a, actually a beautiful surfing town called the Mumbles. She didn't go in the water terribly much, but they liked being around it. They enjoyed taking us to the beach. We would go every weekend 
and the family would play tennis and I quickly tired of tennis and they'd let me go ride my bodyboard and jump waves for a couple of hours while they played tennis on the beachside tennis court. Uh, and they were always, well after a time, supportive of my very strong desire to learn how to surf. So th it's interesting to me that you had this opportunity to do these two different activities, tennis, which your whole family enjoyed, and bodyboarding, which you gravitated towards more. Can you put yourself back in your childhood mind and distinguish between the two? Yeah. Um, I mean, the tennis part was all right. I was never very good at it, but it was running around with mum and dad and my brother. Um, but you could see the beach from there and I could see people in the water and kids my age on surfboards and I just really wanted to do that. And uh, there was always a tension with me and my brother and he wanted to play what we called armies, which was essentially running around the sand dunes. Uh, it was all vegetated, it was really cool. You could crawl in under there and find little passageways through the vegetation and pretend to shoot each other up. And I would indulge him in that for a couple of minutes, but I always just wanted to spend as much time as possible in the surf. Is he older or younger? Older. Okay. Mm -hmm. hmm. It was good that he didn't just beat you up and make you play. <laughs> yeah, kind of did, man. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. I was faster than him. Okay, good. And do you remember when you started to feel some mastery? Um, yes, I, I remember the. there was a transition. <laughs> it's kind of funny. When I started, I had a very, very awkward style because uh, I only got to go to the beach for like four hours on a Saturday. Um, we lived about seven minutes drive from the beach, and but we had a backyard swimming pool, and I would spend the whole rest of the summer in the swimming pool standing up on a, a little foam surfboard and dragging myself around or running and jumping on it and surfing down the length of the pool. Uh, and as a result of getting up in the pool, I to this day have this very, very awkward style of getting to my feet. And when I first started, I would just sit in a squat. And so my high school friends called me the dunny squatter. <laughs> and, and dunny is an Australianism for a commode. Yes, I can infer. <laughs> and uh, I remember when I got past my dunny squatter phase and first learned to um, kind of pump up and down on a wave to generate speed. I couldn't do much more than that. But at the point where you can get up and generate your own speed and go really, really fast. That's the feeling about okay, I'm surfing now. Other than the, these kind of logistical or habitual influences, can you articulate any influence that this love of surfing and being in the water at the ocean and even in the pool had on your development as a child? Um. It made me, I think it led to me being very uh, conservation minded and it's also a product of not just the ocean but where I grew up was surrounded by the most beautiful coastal national parks in Australia, stunning beaches. Um, I grew up at the edge of the coastal rainforest where it turns more into a eucalypt woodland. Um, so being surrounded by nature and water certainly had a big influence. Being in the water all the time so dolphins all the time. I was gravitating towards a, a conservationist mindset from a very early age and was kind of active in some of the uh, communities of people who were protesting different things. Um, and I think it led to that. It also, um, particularly in high school, dictated the kinds of people that I hung out with. 
Um, so that was a pretty big influence as well. Um, they weren't always the best influences to be hanging around, to be honest. But um, we, we had that in common and that cut across different social groups and geographic regions. The surfer kids were always kind of knew who each other were and we'd see each other when we got to drive to different beaches. So, um, yeah. Did you notice in, in those years when you were a teenager in high school, did other peers who were surfing share that conservationist mindset or was that unique to just a few, a few of you? Um, yeah, not, not particularly. Um, I mean, I grew up in the country, so there weren't a lot of outside influences. I th you know, it was a fairly conservative country kind of area. Uh, I was one of the only people whose parents hadn't grown up in that area. Uh, it hadn't enjoyed a whole lot of growth at the time. So I don't think people had a, much in the way of influences outside people who were multi-generational in that fairly conservative rural um, setting. So, um, I mean, there definitely were people who shared those values, but they weren't necessarily surfers. There was a bit more of a, um, I guess, surfer ratbag feeling amongst the kids at that age, where I'm, I'm talking kind of early teens. Okay. And you are, in some ways, a professional student, right? You're an academic. And, yep. Um, so it seems fair to ask uh, how or if your academic studies at that point in your youth intertwined with your surfing in any meaningful way that you can remember? Indirectly rather than directly. There were a lot of pressures on, like I said, those kids that I would hang out with. You know, some of them went down some destructive paths and my particular family situation wasn't conducive to me having a smiley, happy childhood. Uh, and I tended to gravitate towards other kids who were having um, challenging situations as well. And really it was completely falling in love with surfing and only ever really wanting to do that uh, was, I guess, a healthy um, conduit to put all of those emotions and feelings of um, I need to rebel or something and just go surfing all day and being so exhausted. But that kept me really healthy and strong and fit of mind and body and, you know, uh, perhaps a little more focused. Um, and that left room for, you know, I was always a successful student. I didn't put much work into it when I was in high school. Luckily, it seemed to come a bit naturally at that point. But um, surfing kept me going most of the time, as in going to school. Um, but if the surf was good, that would be a different story. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, indirectly kept, kept me on a more positive trajectory than I might otherwise have been on. That does sound like a powerful influence. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then you went to college. And where did you go and what happened? Well, my first foray into college, I mean, this is kind of a, a black hole in my surfing story. I struggled to reconcile my desire to surf with where I should study and at the same time I was I guess struggling with my own personal identity. I don't know if I want to get too psychoanalytical on myself but um, to go from a country town to I, I went to the University of Sydney which is uh, one of the more prestigious universities in Australia and it's in a pretty hip part of town in the inner west of Sydney. 
and the beach and the people who lived there were kind of frowned upon by those communities who were into um, you know, making indie rock music and being cool. Um, there were drugs on the fringe of that scene as well. Um, so I didn't really surf during that first year and didn't have the best experience either. I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist and in my mind I saw that keeping me close to the ocean and I had visions of myself kind of being a Great Barrier Reef tour guide or something. And then I got to university and started studying marine biology and found that the gaseous exchange across the gills of fish really wasn't something that I found as riveting as I thought I might. So I, I ended up going the next year to the Australian National University in Canberra to do a degree in resource and environmental management, which was much more applied and conservation focused. And that was a better experience, but also a long way from the beach. I did manage to go surfing a couple of times. I joined the, the surf club, but it was a four hour drive to the beach from Canberra. And then I'd come home on holidays and I would surf then, but I had jelly arms and um, remember a couple of very frustrating surf sessions of being in really nice surf but barely being able to paddle out and hold myself in, in place in the lineup because we have some nice point breaks but they get currents running up and down them that you have to struggle against. So that was a bit frustrating. So at some point things turned and mm -hmm. became less frustrating. Did that happen before you left your undergraduate experience? or? So I finished up at university and um, the plan was to go do community, well, not necessarily community development work, but the Australian version of Peace Corps essentially uh, somewhere. And it took a while for a placement to come through. So I was living back at home and surfing a bunch and uh, enjoying it. I mean, the place that my father moved to, which wasn't where I had grown up, but it's uh, a thin spit of land between what we call the Great Lakes, they're a lot smaller than the American Great Lakes, and then there's about one kilometre of sand and then the Pacific Ocean, and the beach there is uh, seven miles long and there's rarely anybody on it, just you and a couple of brown snakes. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. So I was really enjoying being in that environment. It was my ritual to surf in the morning, kayak on the lake, and then go have a, a, a sunset swim in the ocean. Um, so I kind of got back in touch with it then. But then I moved to Papua New Guinea for a year and lived in the interior. And uh, this was when the placement came through? Right, you? yeah, okay. eventually. I mean, the placement came through. I'd already decided that I was going to travel through Africa for a year. And the first stop was the UK um, to make some money. And I'd flown all the way to the UK, had been picked up by some friends, driven to Bath from London. And I'd walked in the door and was about to sit down on the couch when the phone in the house rang. Uh, I guess there weren't cell phones then because this was 1996. Uh, and it was a call for me saying, you've got a job in Papua New Guinea, you have to come back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I just spent, I think, two months. Um, I went to Germany and the Netherlands and Ireland and um, visited family in Wales, and then I went back for training and went off to Papua New Guinea. And had you requested placements that offered surfing? Is, no. No, you no, hadn't. You no. just cast the die. And yeah, and didn't want to go to Papua New Guinea either. I had kind of specifically said um, not to go there because it has a very bad PR problem with Australia. Uh, but that's what came up and I uh, decided to go. And so I spent a lot of time sitting 
in motorised dugout canoes going up and down the Seapik River and its tributaries and watching the tiny little barrels that would get spun out of the wake and mine surfing those. And then on uh, breaks in the provincial capital of Weewak, uh, I could see waves breaking on an island off the coast and found a surfboard that a French expat had and took it out there and got to go surfing uh, out there a couple of times. But that was pretty much the extent of it. Okay. Um, and what was your work like in Papua New Guinea? Um, it was essentially uh, living in a bush materials hut that we had to build ourselves, made out of sago palms and bark for the floors, and uh, there was not really any nails, so everything was held together with cane from the forest that you soak in the river for a couple of days so you can bend it and then it dries out. Um, and then we basically went in with a no funding and a three-word job description, and that was it. So it was a, a less than stellar experience from uh, a organisational support perspective. But what ended up happening was uh, we linked up with a Save the Children Fund project called the Marison Mary Project, which means medicine woman in Tokpisin, which is their um, version of pigeon. And what it did was train two women from commu uh, remote communities, one of them in family planning, because people have 10, 12 kids there. Uh, it's not good for the kids, it's not good for the mothers. Um, and then the other one gets trained in basic health care and administering you know, antibiotics, life-saving drugs that aren't too complicated to prescribe. And then you train those two women. You've got to choose the right person. Um, they need to be married, preferably, so that they don't marry out of the village. And then the community builds them uh, a building from which to work out of and they get constantly resupplied with medicines and and pills for family planning by a Save the Children Fund on an ongoing basis. So we linked up with that and went to the 23 most remote villages in the most remote province in Papua New Guinea through dugout canoe. So we would be gone for a couple of weeks visiting different villages, calling community meetings, talking to them about the project. Um, organizing for them to come visit in our village and um, do the training and ultimately that's what happened uh, it took took a while we didn't i'd left before the training took place but the community had it under control with save the children fund by that point okay i have to ask what was the three-word job description community development worker that was it that's it <laughs> okay wow. so, figure it out fella and had they given you any kind of parameters of about what qualifies as community development? No. None. Okay. This is so interesting. So were there, were these other organizations that you linked up with, were those mostly Australians or were there Papua New Guinea natives or who were you working with? This was Save the Children Fund New Zealand. New Zealand. There's okay. A, a lot of uh, NGOs work in Papua New Guinea, a lot of um, religious organizations. The churches has actually changed my perception uh, on missionaries and churches quite a bit. You know, there's a great story from Papua New Guinea 
of uh, the missionary, a couple of missionaries who went into remote villages to kind of spread the word of God, and people came back to find them because they couldn't come back. They didn't come back, and all they found was uh, a couple of villagers chewing on their shoes, and they had eaten them. And I thought, well, that's probably the best thing that you could do with a missionary. At least you get some kind of sustenance from um, their existence. <laughs> But it turns out that they were doing really great things in terms of health care. Uh, the Catholic Church in particular had even managed to go to some lengths to reconcile. I mean, to me, it was very, very strange. You see, you know, biblical depictions on the walls of some of these more extreme churches. And there were some pretty wacky ones from the United States over there um, building like Colorado-style snow condos, two weeks by dugout canoe, halfway up a mountain. A bunch of teenage American zealots had cut themselves an airstrip and they'd flown in these Swiss family Robertson-type, pale-skinned, red-haired, straight out of the church, hallelujah people, and there's pictures everywhere of these white guys in a desert depicting Jesus in Israel or whatever. I'm just like, how does this even resonate? At least the Catholic Church had a black Jesus. Um, and a black Mary that they would hang on the wall. And they, when they first went in, they burned all of the local cultural artefacts. And after a while, they learned that that really annoyed people. And so they figured out ways for cultural expressions to coexist with um, you know, their version of religion. So I, I gained a, a degree of respect for some of the way that uh, religious organisations work. So the, I think this is so interesting that they sent you in as a community development worker. Did you have any conception of the mess that Westerners can make in non-Western cultures when they go in and try to help? Yeah, I think uh, I had a, an understanding of what the, a good process would be and maybe not coming in with an agenda was useful in one way because then it's, oh, how do we do this? All right, step one, meet with the community. Okay, what do you guys want? And I remember that first meeting very, very clearly. Been in the country for about three months, kind of speak the language. So they're asking questions about how all this is going to work. And they're like, so uh, we're going to form these committees and make decisions. Uh, how are women going to be involved with this? And I said, well, it's going to be 50-50. There'll be equal representation between the genders. And I'm like, right, that's it. No, that's not the way that we do things here. And um, so that was a, a kind of a constant struggle to deal with the way that they work with gender there. Um, you know, women are, I mean, they're quite powerful and they have their own organisations, but when the men get involved, it gets messy pretty quickly, which I think is why the NGOs prefer to work with women's groups than men's groups in a lot of places, but particularly in Papua New Guinea. Sorry, I forget the original question. Well, the, I guess the I was asking about if if you'd had any kind of oh, we yeah. would probably call it cultural sensitivity training right. now. No, we did. Okay. Um, so there was a, a week long training before we left, and some really good exercises about understanding different cultures. I mean, I traveled quite a bit with my family before, so I wasn't completely green. But they did this one really great exercise where three different groups of people and you were instructed to do different things. So one group had these flashcards that they were trying to trade with you and they would ask you questions about your male relatives. And another group, they all had different things that they were doing and then they'd throw you all into a room and you'd try to interact with each other. And how you talked to each other and what your objective was was completely 
completely different and it was a really good window into this is what it's going to be like when you're dealing with someone who's you know basic understanding of the world and the way it works and what their personal objectives are are completely beyond your conception so it must have been a profoundly instructive year it was amazing and one of the really interesting parts about it was it was so mind-blowing that a day felt like a week I remember being in the village by the time we got there and it was like an all day I mean the process of getting there was so you fly from Port Moresby to Weewak you get in the back of a a PMV, a public motor vehicle, and you drive along the Weewak Highway, which is notorious for being held up by bandits that they call rascals. And they're pretty nasty. They don't just hold you up. They'll rape the women and kill a couple of people and make everybody get nude. So that was harrowing. Eight hours along there. and Good we grief. At one point, we stopped because a PMV in front of us had just been raided by rascals and they were in all sorts of trouble. And then you get to the Sepik River. From there, it's eight hours from Pagui up to Ambunti, and you spend the night there and from there it's about another four to six hours by dugout canoe you turn off the river go through a lake a smaller river and you end up in a tributary that's probably four to six feet wide in a 30-foot dugout canoe with a 15 horsepower engine take some maneuvering around there Um, but that's how you like for miles and miles and miles scores of miles through these little things and then you end up in a little hill that rises out of a vast wetland it's like 5,000 eagles circling in thermal currents coming off these wetlands and there's the village and it wasn't anything like I expected. I I had these fairly romantic visions of maybe being on the edge of a lake but this was swampy, sulfurous clouds of mosquitoes. I mean it was stunning, it was a full-on Ramsar style wetland but uh, those are probably best enjoyed without smell of vision <laughs> I can only imagine and I'm not sure I can imagine <laughs> so I think my point was I've been there for three days and it, it honestly felt like a month every single second was new and uh, time really stretches out it, it seems a steep learning curve yeah. so you you did this year and there was very little surfing during your year right, in Papua I New Guinea. surfed a few times, yeah. Did you miss it? Or oh, yeah. No, I, I started to get very surf sick towards the end. I had taken some surfing magazines. These were the days before the internet, so um, the greatest joy in life at that point was the every two weeks uh, we'd take the dugout canoe to Ambunti and get the mail. And people knew that we were kind of living on that, so there was a ton of mail to read and people would send me surfing magazines. All of the surfing magazines were at that point really focused on Indonesia, which shares a border with Papua New Guinea. So I started hatching a plan and went, I get out of here. I'm, uh, I'm headed west. Good. You were so close, and yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you completed your service. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Did your plan come to fruition? Yeah, I just jumped on a plane and did a milk run to Bali, which was harrowing in itself. I knew I could get the equipment I needed in Bali. Now, we didn't get paid very much as community development workers, but there were no shops and no cash where we lived. So every cent of that couple of thousand dollars every few months had been saved, so I had a little bit of money. So this plane stopped about eight times between the border and Bali, and one of the stops was to the camp that serves the world's biggest copper and gold mine, the uh, Freeport-McMoran mine in West Papua. 
and it's kind of right in a volcanic caldera and so the plane has to circle around the edge of it and then really quickly descend and land and uh, it's a good sized plane like a, not a small one we when we had been flying through Papua New Guinea we were in five seater single engine Cessnas but this is probably had 150 seats so we did that and then we're doing this very deep descent, steep descent into the runway and we're almost on the ground and then suddenly the nose of the plane lifts up, you can hear the engines are at full power and we're struggling to try and gain altitude and we're you know, maybe 50 feet off the ground in a 150 person plane. People are screaming, things are flying out of the buckets, even overhead, even the air hostesses are screaming which is never a good sign. And we eventually manage to get some altitude and we just scrape out the edge of this cold air and we go up in the air again and we level out and everyone's like what is going on and then we hear the landing gear come down and then they landed so I, I think we had the work experience pilot <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> yes we got to put the landing gear down then we had to stop six more <laughs> oh times goodness. before we got to Bali so it was, uh, it was a white knuckle ride okay so you didn't die in the plane nope that's really good <laughs> I'm grateful for that uh, and then uh, you went to Bali. Did I hear correctly that this was essentially to, to get gear? I'd, I'd been to Bali before and I was aware that it had been built out. And what I wanted to do in my mind was surf exploration. Um, you know, go to the further flung, pla flung places. I mean, I've been dreaming about doing that since I was a kid. And uh, I would cut out pictures of people in a remote and exotic locations and put them on the walls of my bedroom to the point where you couldn't see even a square inch of wall it was just completely covered from floor to ceiling with pictures of people surfing in beautiful places so I'd always wanted that and not being able to surf very much throughout that year really kind of drove that home so I went to Bali picked up a, a six foot eight Joey Thomas which is a an American board interestingly and I knew I wanted something a little bigger because I was not I wasn't paddle fit I just had malaria I was very thin and not very strong so I got a slightly bigger board and I thought that could get me into some bigger waves when I got fitter and started uh, moving back to the east and I, I knew there was a pretty easy wave on this island called Nusa Lombongan which is a short boat ride an hour away has a nice little left-hander called um, what is it called it's called playground or something like that I don't think that's the name but uh, it, it's known to be mellow and easy so I spent a week or two there I've got my sea legs back my paddling arms back got a little bit more brave and graduated to a more challenging wave called razors and started getting barreled and thought yeah this is good I think I'm ready to move on and so I uh, went from there over to Sumbawa and spent some time surfing Lakey Peak and Lakey Pipe and Nungas and Periscopes. There's good breaks in the middle of Sumbawa. And then across to West Timor. It's a really nice break in a town, a little town called Nembrala over there. And at that point it had been uh, a couple of months, so I needed to go get a visa. So I got on a plane from there uh, and went to Darwin in Australia, right up the top end of the Northern Territory to what's called a visa run. And then had my first hot shower in 18 months. And Feel good, did it? I was in there for at least two hours. <laughs> I bet. And uh, turned right around and came back and kind of did the same thing in reverse. 
at that point a couple of my school friends who I'd been writing to, again no internet, no emails at this point, um, and they, I invited them to kind of join the adventure and they did for a little while. So we went back through Timor, but this time we went through Sumba, which was one of, you know, one of the least developed islands in the entire archipelago. For, there was us and two other guys, and we were the only surfers on the island at the time. And the surf was big and rugged and perfect, as big as any of us had ever been out in. And we were staying in a dirt-floored hut owned by the village chief, and our bananas would get stolen by monkeys, and they'd serve us roadkill. And, times <laughs> and you were until your friends came and joined joined you you were alone you were traveling alone yeah I've always kind of well always since I was of independent traveling age I'd always done it by myself I just found that when I travel with someone else um, it becomes too easy just to be with that person and I found that when I travel by myself because I'm generally a fairly shy and introverted kind of person i don't do well at parties with people I don't know. Uh, I, I hate conferences when there's a room full of people. I'm like networking is my idea of hell. But when I'm by myself, then I'm forced to kind of interact with people. And uh, it's kind of a good lesson that you're never really alone. You're just a conversation away from a friend and a travel partner for a couple of days or a week or two weeks, and then um, someone else comes along. So I'd always enjoyed that kind of travel. Okay, so. Uh at this point, uh, you and I enjoyed a couple of surf sessions over the last couple of days, so I know it's a little bit of your really story. Good, yeah. It's been good. We've had a south swell, yeah. haven't we? Yes, we um, have. And we went to a place called Beacons. Mm -hmm. The waves are big for me, and I was scared and determined not to break anything or bleed too much, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, managed to take off on a couple of fun rides and saw you do some amazing uh, maneuvering on those big waves. So I, it was a total pleasure. I, I don't think there was any man amazing maneuvering going on, but I caught some <laughs> some of the bigger waves I've had in a while. Um, I prefer to be easily amazed. It makes life much more interesting. <laughs> so I know a little bit of this backstory, and and you, uh, it was during this travel, wasn't it, in Indonesia, that you started to get some of these vocational inklings, the idea of what you might like to do with your life. Very much so. Um, I mean, I'd mentioned that I was kind of into con conservation and then that time in Indonesia completely transformed my ideas of cultures other than my own and uh, I had zero tolerance for racism after that because I'd been cast adrift in a world I knew nothing about and the only reason that I was able to remain alive was because of friendly happy people who couldn't read and couldn't write you know all the hallmarks of what it is to be an important person in our culture. There was none of that. They couldn't get their way around a city street. They would have freaked out. But they knew how to live in their own environment. And they were walking through a forest. To me, all the trees looked the same. And they'd be pointing out 50 different species within a 20-foot radius and what they were useful for. Uh, it was just a real eye-opening experience. Of the, to assume that you are better than people who live in societies different from your own and value things in different ways is, is really quite appalling. And I wasn't ready to, uh, to kind of just be complicit with that going on. And that was going on um, all through the Indonesian archipelago, particularly in the more populated areas. I mean, Bali is kind of the 
the Cabo of Australia. It's very close and it's basically a holiday extension of Australia and, you know, our best and brightest aren't amongst the people who go there for the most part and uh, their flagrant racism was really very appalling and that was spilling over into some of the surfing destinations as well. Surf tourism was propping up many of these coastal communities, even in the furthest flung parts of Indonesia, if there was a good wave there, there was a surfing economy around it. But the social and cultural impacts of having people going on essentially their worst behaviour and what that was like for the people who lived there, I don't think the people visiting it ever really considered to think what that might be like for a kid growing up in that village. To see groups of people who have stuff that you covet, who never seem to work, and all they do is get drunk, um, go surf and chase girls, solicit prostitutes, take drugs. Um, and that's the behaviour that was going on. And then on top of that, the infrastructure and superstructure that was being put in place to service this industry was built too close to the beach, was causing coastal erosion. The sewerage wasn't being dealt with at all, let alone properly. There's essentially pipes that ended at the sand and you were surfing in your own crap. Building materials were coming out of uh, mangrove swamps behind in, and those ecosystems were being destroyed. It just wasn't a very good situation and I didn't feel good being a part of it and I, I felt embarrassed for the sport that I really love and I felt em embarrassed for us as visiting surfers and for an industry that you know, I was still going back to those pictures of those people surfing in these beautiful places and I was in those same beautiful places and we were screwing it up and that wasn't in the magazines. The, uh, the discourse that was there was just completely non-reflective of what was going on on the ground. I was, I was shocked and appalled and disappointed. And so it struck me that the things I'd learned about community development in Papua New Guinea, there's a process that international NGOs had been perfecting for 40 or 50 years of how you work with communities, and they'd made lots of mistakes along the way, but they were getting pretty good at it. And none of that was being brought in to inform what was going on in surf tourism. There were well-known ways of how you do projects like this well, you can profit as well, even as a foreign investor, but you can do it in ways that are good for local communities that employ them, that help them to rise with you and not resent you being there, which was the situation as well. Like Local communities were antagonistic towards visiting surfers and the industries that were there because they were screwing up their villages and screwing up the lives of their kids and their daughters were becoming prostitutes and the boys weren't getting work. They were going surfing and stealing stuff from the visitors and, and that that's... It's not a sustainable future for those kids. So um, to me, those pieces needed to be put together. This sustainable tourism was just starting to become a word. Ecotourism was a word I heard for the first time in researching all of this. And putting that theory and knowledge from the development world together with surfing, uh, it struck me that there would be ways to make this an industry where everybody could benefit from the kind of spread of surfing around the world and we needn't be embarrassed and ashamed of it but we could feel good about it. So let me clarify one question that I have when you said the the infrastructure and the superstructure that uh, was being built to support this surf tourism who was doing that building? Traveling surfer guy from France comes gets a local girl pregnant decides to stay um, 
asks his parents for $20,000 and they build a restaurant. Okay. Uh, and then after that, local people would start to say, hey, we could make some money. Let's, let's build, they called it a lozman, um, which is lodgement, but Indonesians find it very hard to say lodgement, so they say lozman. Um, let's build a lozman, and, and so they would, and then they'd start making some money from that, which is great. It's organically grown um, home industries. It's, it's, there wasn't thought put into, well, how do we maximise that? Are we going to have tons and tons of people paying basically nothing? Um, are we going to tell them how we, would like to be, how we would like them to behave in our communities? All of those things were missing. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so how long was this trip that you were on in, through Indonesia? Um, well, it kind of spilled back into Papua New Guinea as well, and it was, okay. it was the better part of a year. Better part of a year, mm-hmm. okay. And off and on with friends and, and on your own. And, right. And, and you saw this phenomenon in more than one place. I mean, this was everywhere, thematic. Everywhere. I everywhere. Mean. All right, so then th- at this point, you're 24 yeah. years old? 20? Uh, 23. 23, okay. So just a, just a whippersnapper mm-hmm. um, and, and embarrassed and maybe a little outraged at what you're seeing. Uh, what, what did you decide to do with that? Um, I decided that those pieces that I was uh, speaking about, the community development, um, knowledge, sustainability, sustainable development that had come out of the Earth Summit in Rio and Agenda 21 that was the product of that, was kind of the, the mantra at the time, that that needed to be brought to bear to inform surf tourism development. And it, it seemed to me that somebody needed to do that that there could possibly be a career in doing that and that if anybody was going to have that career it should probably be me uh, because I loved surf travel and wanted to do it as much as possible moving forward. Uh, I've never been a good surfer, it's not something that came naturally to me. I love doing it, just not that great at it. So no one is ever going to pay me to be a surfer to go travel places. I need to have a, a different game going on. So that's what it was. Okay, so you're 24, you've got your undergraduate degree, and what was your undergraduate degree in? It was a Bachelor of Science in Resource and Environmental Management. And at what point did you decide to return to school? Well, I went back um, to Australia after Indonesia in Papua New Guinea, finding some surf, um, working on a, on a voluntary basis with a family who had a guest house on that island that I'd found the waves on and helping them to with some of their infrastructure development and marketing and then went back to Australia and started volunteering for a couple of different conservation NGOs so Worldwide Fund for Nature and there was another one called the Mineral Policy Institute which was a watchdog organization for mining companies so I would write papers for them and um, answer the phones and participate in their protest and when I first got to Ambunti for my um, Australian Peace Corps equivalent placement, there were two white guys there, and that's pretty shocking because out, out there there's just not that many folks of my complexion. So you immediately, well, who are you guys? And um, this one guy, his name was Paul Chatterton, uh, worked for Worldwide Fund for Nature, and they were doing some jobs there. And uh, we got along, and I looked him up when we got back, and he was the guy who got me into Worldwide Fund for Nature and he also worked with that Mineral Policy Institute and at that time he was something of a mentor for me and I was talking to him about, you know, I'd had that idea 
but I was a little scared to bring it up because it was a little wacky and I talked to him about do you, do you think I could do this you know could I create a consulting career that brought these things together and he told me about himself where uh, he had moved I think he he grew up somewhere remote maybe Tasmania and he moved to Sydney to try and get work in the in a conservation NGO and he gave himself two months to do it and he figured if that didn't work then he would give up on that dream and do something more mainstream and he managed to piece it together so he was like why don't you give it a try uh, here's this professor at the University of Technology Sydney is one of the world's um, renowned experts on ecotourism well, would you have a chat and so I did and one thing led to another I mean it took a little while my mother died pretty quickly after I got back and that kind of sat me on the couch for six months I would imagine and uh, and then I I mean really the only reason I could go back and do a master's degree was because of some money that she left me and she was always very big on two things with me um, was education and travel and she knew and understood my love of surfing she was very new agey and she always thought it was important that I go surfing and she would happily pay for me to go travel places and she thought that education was really important so it seemed like a good coalescing of um, what she would have wanted me to do. A good way to honor her memory and also follow your own leanings. Mm -hmm. So you went to have a chat with the the expert. How did that work out? I thought I was going to go in and do another undergraduate degree as I'd enjoyed my undergraduate degree experience and uh, I was going to do a degree in tourism studies and I was going to just be thinking about surf tourism the whole way and he said no you should just do a master's degree essentially the same material but condensed into two years and at a higher level so that's what I did and uh, right before I started that um, after a, a painful relationship breakup on a on a whim and with some of that money that my mother had left me I just dropped everything and went to Indonesia and worked on a surf charter boat that was doing sea trials off the northwest northwest coast of Sumatra uh, and had made some connections up there and came right back and went right into this master's degree with uh, a very firm focus and contacts in the surf tourism industry there and because I was living and breathing it, I, there was nothing I was more interested in. My work was actually pretty good. And so uh, it, it didn't take long before the head of the department came in and said, Jess, I'm doing this the old school style, where we come in and we, we tap promising students on, on the shoulder and we'd like you to do a PhD and we have a full stipend to offer you to do that. Which I didn't want because I was focused on setting myself up in a consulting career. I just wanted to get the knowledge about tourism management. I already knew about community development and I wanted to put those things together and then just go work out in the field. But I didn't know where my money was going to be coming from after I finished the master's degree and they were offering me three years worth of good money tax-free to work on what I was already enjoying working on. So I thought the worst thing that could happen was I would end up being an academic and that didn't seem like an appealing plan B at the time, but at least there was a plan B. So that's what I did. When you first went to college, did you have any idea that you would continue your education for so long and so successfully? No, I don't think it was, no. It's not what I went in with. I had never in my life intended to be an academic. And my parents were very adamant that I wasn't to be a teacher. They were both teachers. 
and my mother's father was a teacher and so I'm a third generation teacher and I, I, it was never intended to happen. What I thought was going to happen was I would get a degree in something to do with con conservation. Uh, I would leverage that to be near the coast and I would work in protecting that environment, not as an agitator but as someone who worked for probably a government agency and was involved in ameliorating environmental damage. That's kind of how I saw it going. And did you do well right off the bat when you got to school as an undergraduate? No. Um, it came as a, I mean, just the whole moving to a big city with a lot going on and living right in the heart of the hip part of the city was uh, quite distracting. And I'd always done well at high school despite the fact that I never did any work. And I found that the people who were at university were you know, all at that same level of acumen within the context of schoolwork, I guess. I don't think that makes you particularly brighter or not than other people who function well within that paradigm, but these were all high-functioning people in that paradigm and not studying didn't help at all. Um, so I, I never failed a class, but I got what were called um, terminating passes, and that meant you get your credit, but it can't count as a prerequisite to move on in this area. And I got those in chemistry and statistics, and I was happy about that because I was like, <laughs> let me always be reminded that I never want anything to do with statistics or chemistry. I mean, other things in the, in the biological sciences I've always really enjoyed and done well with, um, so that those classes were pretty good. But I didn't see that degree exciting me the way that I was hoping to be excited by it. Knowing what I know now, I think if I'd stayed on for a couple of years and moved into some of the more specialised classes, it probably would have captured my interest, but at the time I didn't know. So I, I went off to a more applied science degree and it immediately became far more fun. The first thing I did was go out into a forest and count kangaroo shit in a, in a transect and from that calculate the density of kangaroos. Oh, this is much this is, cooler. Yeah, much more fun. <laughs> yes. Okay, so back to graduate school. At this point, you've got a way to feed yourself, mm -hmm. and you're studying what you want to study. How did that unfold, that PhD process? And were you surfing the whole time and continuing to travel? Yeah, I was, I was quite lucky at that point. After I had moved back to Australia after my volunteer work and travels, I decided to move right back to the beach because I was the fittest I'd ever been and have ever been in my life and surfing better than I probably ever had or ever, and ever will again and completely obsessed with surfing and I'd go out in any size surf at that time. Moved up and down the northern beaches of Sydney and then when I was doing my PhD um, a guy who I had done my undergraduate degree with came from a family of doctors so they had this beachfront property um, on the headland between Queenscliff and Freshwater Beaches in Australia and they bought a little cottage next to it so they owned two properties together and they let me live in the one next door for an absurdly small amount of money that covered their mortgage on that. I don't know how it covered it but it, um, I guess they put a lot down but I was living way beyond my means. I had this beautiful little two-story beach cottage with a park across the road and then stairs down to two different beaches. And I would just uh, surf and do my work and surf and do my work. And it was 
not that different from an academic lifestyle that I have now because I had to go and teach as a graduate assistant as well and I started you know it's not a nine to five and I really liked that part the flexibility. For the second part of this interview and more information about Dr. Jess Ponting, the Center for Surf Research and Stoke Certification, visit wavestowisdom.com.